Hang on a second. Okay. Dan, so uh, you, you've asked a question about pain and you mentioned about sitting long time. Um, there are sometimes advantages for sitting a long time, but for the beginners, I would not recommend that because for one thing, um, the mind gets tired. Mm -hmm. In, in Western education, they know all about attention span. And so the attention span is something that has to be taken into consideration. And so the way that I would teach students about how long to sit is sit as long as you can continue to have wholesome thoughts in the mind, which means to sit uh, until um, you've had about as much joy and pleasure as you can stand. <laughs> and that's okay, the time yeah. to quit. That the Buddha didn't have any clocks. Right. There were no clocks in the time of the Buddha. They did have things, though. They had what we would call joss sticks or incense sticks. Mm -hmm. But in the time of the Buddha, they used those joss sticks as um, uh, mosquito repellent. That's what they were for. And so um, basically, uh, then the end of the meditation would be when the mosquitoes come back. <laughs> yep, that makes sense. Okay. Okay. And that happens at, at night because um, I've been in, in all night sittings uh, uh, to, that you know when the incense stick is burned out mm. because the mosquitoes come back. <laughs> And and so if if the practice is going to be the practice of putting wholesome things in the mind and removing unwholesome things in the mind, when you get to the point that you can't do that anymore, then now is the time to stop or to make a change so that you can get the mind back into a wholesome place. But you're talking about the pain of sitting and that um, I know a number of people personally who uh, have sat too long and have actually injured themselves. Mm -hmm. Generally, what they injure is the knees mm -hmm. that I know a number of people, some of which are still monks. The first one that I ever heard about was Contipalo, and he disrobed many, many years ago. Uh, but there are many, many other uh, monks who get to the point that they can't sit. I know of one monk, a Western monk, he's Canadian, I'm not going to give you his name, uh, but that he has sat so much that he's incapable of sitting now. And so he goes into a great deal of pain every time he sits down with the Thai monks, and so he can't sit with monks. Therefore, he can't live with monks. Uh, Therefore, he's going to be a monk. He's got to go off someplace on his own so that he can sit in a chair because of his own mental states, you see. Mm. All right. People do harm themselves by sitting too much. Let me see who is there's Vila Maramsi will be one who does not sit on flat. He always sits in a chair because he sits hmm. so much that he injured his knees. 
I also have one student now, for some reason or another, he didn't injure his knees, he injured his butt. And so now he can't even sit on his butt. Well, yikes. Yeah, a comment on that. I actually, I used to sit on a meditation cushion, you know, half lotus or whatever, and um, and I, I would get a lot of pain um, in my knees and in my ankles, especially my ankles, and my feet, would, my legs would fall completely asleep. And so I started, I just got sick of it after a certain point and started sitting in a chair. And that actually improved my practice when I did that. Um, hmm. And um, and it actually goes against the conventional wisdom that you need to sit half lotus or, or whatnot. Um, I wouldn't me, call just, that, I would call it conventional, but I wouldn't call it wisdom. Sure, <laughs> sure, sure. The conventional thoughts, you know, conventional, conventional thought, kind of. Right. Ordinary and, and, thought. Yeah, or you could even call it the aesthetic of meditation, right? You know, because there's this whole aesthetic, you know, with Western Buddhism, as we've been talking about Western Buddhism, that and and a lot of it involves, you know, incense and you know yoga pants, you know, and this ritual, and basically. Yeah, right. yeah. You know, and all of that's just superficial, right? You know, it, you can see like an an eighty year old guy sitting in a chair, and he could be having a, a sit that's ten times better than the 30-year-old that's in the proper full lotus, whatever, you know. <laughs> yeah. And um, and it's really about what's best for your practice, you know. Yeah, that makes sense. Yes, so uh, we've got two issues going. One is how long can the mind stay wholesome and healthy? And mm-hmm. how about the body? So you've got both body issues and mental issues about the longevity of the sitting. Mm-hmm. And when you have both of those issues completely resolved, then you can just sit for a long time and the body is not bothering you and the mind is not bothering you. Mm-hmm. But in the beginning, uh, there's this issue of the attention span and that uh, as you keep developing practice of taking on wholesome thoughts, practicing correctly in the sense of one's right effort, and you continue to practice that along with the breathing. You see, one of the reasons why people get uh, the mind gets tired is because it's not getting enough oxygen. Mm-hmm. And so if we uh, practice on Apanasati with the full intention that we're going to keep the body energized with our breathing, we take long, deep, easy breathing, and that in fact, for many, uh, by doing that, uh, they can actually experience or feel that the body becomes tingly alive. Mm-hmm. That we become quite alert and quite alive because we're actually breathing well. And by breathing in, we're getting the oxygen, but also by breathing out long, we're actually emptying the lungs more, taking more of the air out of it, which means we're emptying out more of the pollution. That if we're breathing shallowly, then we are breathing like between 40 and 60 percent. So on the in-breath, we go up to 60. On the out-breath, we go down to 40. If you recognize that over and over again, that's quite an accumulation of crap in the lungs. (laughs) But if we can go up to about 80 percent, down to about 20 percent, now we're doing Mm. a whole lot more cleansing. That we don't have to completely empty the lungs or completely fill up the lungs but we just take a little bit longer, deeper breathing so that we energize the body and help relieve the um, 
the carbon dioxide and other buildups. And there's a lot of other stuff that's in there too uh, that makes the, uh, the, uh, the blood acidic, including <clears throat> amino acids. Mm -hmm. Amino acids have the habit of making things acidic. Acid does that too. That's <laughs> <laughs> funny about that. All right. And so by breathing out, we can eliminate a lot of poisons that would, uh, if the blood uh, is not cleansed by the lungs, then that gives that same work to do to the kidneys. So you're actually, mm -hmm. by breathing deeper, you're actually um, making uh, part of the body work even less that we're not quite aware of. So the kidneys don't have quite so much work to do because a lot of the pollution is taken out with through the lungs. Hmm. So that's yeah. a question, um, you know, getting back to the whole concept of pain and whatnot, um, you know, uh, having studied Zen to a good degree, and I used to sit Zen, I did that for a while, um, the Zenists, and this might not be Buddhism, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts as to whether or not this is just Zen or, or, or whatnot, um, would often um, kind of make pain a part of their practice, at least as, as I perceived it. You know, like, for example, they have the stick, you know, that you would get whacked with if you weren't sitting properly. Um and, uh, you know, would have to sit in uncomfortable positions. You're not supposed to move at all. You know, if you're in a Zen center and you move, they will ask you not to move, um, you know, et cetera. So I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that kind of idea of having pain in the legs, per se, is just part of the practice. It's something you just have to overcome. Um, um. Rather than talking about that, let's talk about uh, uh, the long sitting posture that is called the strong determination sitting that Gawanka has. A one hour sitting without opening your eyes, opening your arms, or opening your legs, which is similar to what you're talking about. Sure. And um, there, then the students are invited to uh, allow the body to generate sensations so that the students can see that sensation is just sensation and they begin to recognize that pain is something that the mind is doing hmm. that the body is just doing sensation and that you can investigate the area of the body now it does have some advantage there is a great deal of advantage of doing that because what it does is that it gives the student, um, let us say, an artificial or forced way of learning to deal with pain. That a more uh, progressive step-by-step uh, -step sequence would be is to get the mind uh, in a really, really good place without it being under tensions and pressures. You take all the tension and all the pressure off the mind with postures and whatnot like that, and still the mind is unwholesome. So in the beginning, we have to deal with getting the mind out of its unwholesome states into the wholesome states. Once the mind is in a wholesome state, once the uh, thoughts are wholesome, then we can begin to add back into it all of the stuff that we can call the world. 
including learning to work with the body. An example of that, not just sitting for long periods of time, but from time to time the body gets sick. Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa talks about being sick as an opportunity to practice. What does that mean? Well, you're going to be sick anyway. You're going to sit there and sick, be sick and miserable, or are you going to sit there and bet, let the body be sick? But the mind's not sick. I'm not sick. The body is sick. I'm okay. Everything is all right. Okay, so now we're beginning to understand that we can actually use some austerities as a practice tool once we get up to a certain level. So let's use it in the example then, or the analogy would be like going into a gym. When the student goes into the gym the first time, uh, they see perhaps a, uh, a dumbbell, a, a two kilogram dumbbell, a five pound dumbbell laying on the floor. And they say, oh, it should be on the rack. And so they pick that dumbbell up, that two uh, kilo dumbbell to put it on the rack. It's heavy. Two kilo dumbbell, you pick that up, that's a heavy food. But after five years of practice, he goes back into gym this time, all muscled up and everything, and he sees a two pound, uh, two kilogram uh, dumbbell on the floor. He picks it up with two fingers like this, and he puts it over there. Very easy for him to do. Okay, so this is what we're talking about, is that we can build up, and that we do, when, uh, uh, when the mind gets to the advanced point, we actually do want to put extra weights on it. An example of that would be a runner will tie sandbags to his ankles. Yeah. Okay, but the beginner doesn't tie sandbags to his ankles. That's too yeah. much for the beginner. That's yeah, true. Mm -hmm. Okay. So why then should the, uh, uh, the beginning meditation student tie sandbags to himself by practicing longer than he's actually going to get any benefit out of it? Mm -hmm. So we have to judge ourselves, engage it, because there'll be opportunity enough. The world's going to give you enough misery for you to practice on. <laughs> you don't have to go generate it. And so the Buddha was actually quite specific about what austerities, because there was a lot of people who came to the Buddha from the austerity practices. Dog duty aesthetic, cow duty aesthetic, uh, flagellation, starving. There's all kinds of aesthetic practices. And the Buddha broke it, broke it down to basically uh, very, very few aesthetic practices, and one of them is going barefoot. Why? Because when you're out walking barefoot, you've got to watch where you're going. Self-flagellation, not so much. You can take that chain or that whip and you can whip your back and you don't have to pay much attention to it. But if you're out walking barefoot, you're going to walk, you're going to pay attention to where every foot, every footfall. You're going to watch where you're stepping. And so that's an austerity that would be worth uh, having is practicing going barefoot. I know, I practice that often. I wear shoes about once a month. That, that, that'd be pretty tricky where I live. Dan, I live in New York. So it's oh, man. That, that, that'd be something here. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, you and well, you know, all kinds of stuff, yeah. Well, that's the whole <laughs> point about it. I mean, at least you've got sidewalks to walk on. 
here, here we have snakes in the grass. Here we have um, all kinds of things. In fact, uh, um, there is a particular plant. It's a very interesting plant in the sense that if you touch it with your finger, the, the leaves uh, around it will fold up. And then you can see the whole plant all folding hmm. up. This plant has spikes on it. If you step on that plant, you're going to get a spike in your foot. Thorns. So you have to watch where you're going. So you can't talk about New York being dangerous. We've got thorns and we've got snakes right, and we've got gravel. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I'm in Arizona and we can we can cook on the ground in the summer. So I've got something. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> That's pretty intense, yeah. <laughs> so uh, it, it sounds like, um, I, I've heard this phrase before, and maybe this is kind of what you're getting at. Uh, rather than having like a one really long sit, we do, I think the phrase is uh, small moments many times. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let us say that you had worked yourself up to being able to sit for an hour. And so you sit for an hour every day. Never mind what you're doing in that hour every day. The other 23 is full of hindrances. Mm -hmm. So you've got 25 years of hindrances behind you, hindrances full time. And now you're practicing an hour a day with 23 hours of hindrances, which is going to win. Right. Yeah. The old established that takes up most of the time or the new kid on the block that only has a, a little <laughs> bit of time in it. No, 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 no. Okay. But in fact, um, meditation's advantage is not for sitting in meditation. The meditation's advantage is for you to live your life happy and comfortably. Mm -hmm. yep. Therefore, the... we need to practice off the cushion, not on the cushion. The real practice, is in, in fact, I would say it three, uh, that there's the three P's. There is practice, performance, and play. Practice, performance, and play. In the beginning, in, like let's use the analogy of learning to play the piano. We don't learn to play the piano by playing the piano. We learn to play the piano by practicing the piano. We have to practice over and over and over again. Practice scales, practice chords, and when we get the fingering techniques and some uh, music theory behind us, then learning to play a new piece of music is easier, but we still have to practice it. But the whole point about that piece of music is, is that it's to be performed in public. And so what you could say is, is that while we're on the cushion, that would be an actual practice time. But then that meditator, even the first day of meditation, he's got to go out in the world and live his life. Can he start performing that which he was practicing on the cushion? Right. And I often use the terminology busking. Do you know what I mean by someone who's out busking? Yeah. It's, it's a common word in Australia, but in America, they don't use it so much. Busking means you're a street musician. Hmm. You're out on the okay. street playing your acts, okay? And when there is nobody around, the street musician will actually start to practice. He'll start doing a bit of scales. He'll be playing a bit of piece of music. But as soon as the past, uh, 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 pedestrian starts to walk by, 
immediately he comes out of practice and starts to perform for them. Mm -hmm. Okay? Mm -hmm. But the real point about music is not the performance. The real issue is can you actually play it? Can you play? Can you really enjoy what you're doing? That's beyond mm -hmm. the performance, okay? So imagine that the new kid just learned to play the piano. He's got his first or second uh, season of piano recitals where he's got to perform. He's got to get every note right. He's thinking about each note. And then later, he's actually now a concert pianist. And the first time he's performing, let us say, a, a Tchaikovsky's piano concerto. And he is watching every note. He's playing it correctly, and it sounds beautiful. But imagine now, after he's played that piece of music publicly, performed it over the years, 10, 20, 30 years, that when he's becoming an old man, he's got that, even though it's intricate, long, difficult piece of music, like a piano concerto, he knows it by heart. Literally, he knows it by heart. And now when he plays it, he really gets a kick out of it. Now he's playing. Okay. We need to learn how to play our life. To let your life become a beautiful piece of music that is playful. <laughs> so in the beginning, we start with practice. Then we go into performance. How do we perform? I would say that we would want to do Anapanasati. I would recommend, in fact, that if you're going to spend only an hour at it, to break it into six groups of 10 minutes or four groups of 15 minutes. And do 15 minutes in the morning, 15 minutes at lunch, 15 minutes when you go home, and 15 minutes before you go to bed. That would be much, much better because each time that you do it, the mind is sharp and focus for that 15 minutes. But if yeah. you practice it for an hour, the first 15 minutes may be good. The second 15 minutes is so-so. The third 15 minutes is work. And the fifth and the fourth part, that last 15 minutes is hell. <laughs> and, and so basically, what we're, now we're, we end up in practicing hell. And we call that meditation because we're sitting too long. Sure. So does that still apply if if your goal or goal for the day or session or whatever is to enter a jhana or something like that? Is that reasonable within a, a 10 or 15 if minute period? If you know what you're doing, if you do have your skill development, then you can do that first jhana by clicking all the things off one at a time. Mm -hmm. And you're in first jhana. The first thing to do, the number one is removal of the hindrances. Get the mind out of unwholesome states into wholesome states. If you can't do that, John is nowhere. Mm -hmm. Okay? You got to have the mind free from hindrances, which means the mind's got to be in a lovely state. The state is everything's all right, everything is fine, no worries here. And then we begin to work on some of the other aspects. Now, here's something that's very interesting. Whenever first jhana is listed, they almost always list it with five aspects. And that when those five aspects are brought together, then that's the first jhana. So it's got five features to it, or five points. And if you're missing one of those points, then you don't have jhana. Mm -hmm. When you have all of the factors of jhana 
collected together, then you have the first jhana. So if you can collect those things together very quickly, then you're in first jhana very quickly. If you don't have the hindrances removed, there's no chance of getting into second jhana. You've got to get the hindrances out. You've got to get the mind into a pleasant state. Then the next thing is, is that you've got to talk yourself into feeling really good so that you actually do feel really good. This is the sukha. The feeling really good is exactly the same thing as freedom from suffering. Because when you're feeling good, you're not suffering. We actually need to practice and be in that third noble truth to be free from suffering, to get yourself into a state of delighted mind. Everything's okay. Everything's fine. Now, I would like to take a moment to add that there are in some suttas, one in particular where there's actually an additional item added to that list of five. And that added additional one is relaxation of the body. And you could go so far as to say, you know, that should have been there all along. They should have always had six. But the Buddha just didn't bother to mention it. I think possibly because the definition of the first jhana uh, had already been set. That everybody in the time of the Buddha, they knew what that was. Or at least the jhana dudes knew that it had these five features. But the Buddha uh, uses those five features. But occasionally adds the sixth one, which is the relaxation of the body. So now we've covered one of them, and that is the hindrances have to be free from hindrances. The second one is, is that the, uh, the body is relaxed because we are, in fact, relaxed. The mind is relaxed. This is what we mean by the sukha. The sukha is actually wrongly uh, translated into the English as sensual pleasure. But sukha is not sensual, and it, but it can be considered pleasure because it's, in fact, the absence of dukkha. That everything is all right, everything is fine, there is no problems. That, this is sukha. In fact, in the, in the Pali uh, uh, dictionaries, it mentions safety, security, contentment, and satisfaction. This is sukha, safety, security, contentment, and satisfaction. Now, a lot of people deal with fear. There's all kinds of things to be afraid of when we're children, and we grow up in the habit of being afraid. Um, and so learning to be in a state of sukha means that we're okay now, that we recognize there is no danger. Everything is fine. We open our eyes. We look around. No snakes, no alligators, no mafia, no cops, no COVID. Everything is okay. No reason to feel afraid. I can relax. Everything is all right. So this is the sukha. That's also a factor of uh, the first jhana. You could say that sukha is actually... Um, very closely aligned with a relaxation of the body. This is, in fact, taking the first three items of the Eightfold Noble Path. First comes right view. Right view is uh, known to be right view, and one's right effort is, is to take wrong view and turn it to right view. 
and also to change one's thoughts from wrong thoughts, unwholesome thoughts, into wholesome thoughts. This is one's right effort. In order to make that effort, though, we've got to make that determination. Is this a wholesome thought or not? So back to the investigation. The investigation is, in fact, one's right view. You keep looking. You keep investigating. What kind of thought is this? What kind of thought is that? Is this wholesome or is it not wholesome? And we start uh, evaluating and uh, uh, investigating for what is wholesome and what is not wholesome. And then we take the right effort to change it from unwholesome to wholesome. This leaves one more point, and that is sati, to wake up, to remember to do this. If you don't remember to do it, you're not going to do it. For that reason, sati is the very important number one skill to develop because that's what comes first. You wake up to recognize, I'm going to check what's in the mind. I'm going to throw it out if it's, under, if it's a hindrance to throw it out. And I'm going to put something in the mind that is, in fact, wholesome. So with mm -hmm. that now, we have three factors of the Eightfold Noble Path working. They run and circle around each other, right view, right effort, and right sati. To wake up, to take a look, to see what's going on, and then take the effort to make a change. You got that? Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. now we're going to add some uh, an additional quality of uh, the first jhana as well as an additional point in the Eightfold Noble Path. But first, we have to get ourselves into a state of sukha over and over and over again. And once we recognize I can do this, then that's building confidence. If I can do it once, I can do it again. If I can do it twice, I can do it three times. If I can do it three times, I can do it four times. Not only a fourth time, I'm getting actually better at doing it. So I do it over and over and over again, and I develop the skills of these three things of sati, right effort and right view to keep take, waking up, taking a look and making a change. <laughs> you got that? Yeah. So the next point then is right noble attitude, which is in the, uh, the Pali word for it is Sama Sankapa. And it is almost always translated as either right thought or right intention. Right intention is problematic. Because we can see that intention means that I want something and I intend to get it. Mm -hmm. Okay. But if we think of it as right thought, well, any thought that you have is based upon an attitude. So if you're able to change your thoughts, you can also change your attitude. And so the attitude, Sama Sankapa, is the fourth ingredient, and that's built upon the fact that we can, in fact, gain success over and over again by getting into a state of satisfaction. So that state of uh, satisfaction, we add that fourth ingredient of right noble attitude, and that right noble attitude then in the Anapanasati Sutta, as well as the first jhana, is referred to as the word pity. So you have pity and sukha, and that the hindrances, the panchanarava, are eliminated. We're building jhana factors now. What is mm -hmm. pity? Pity is actually the feeling of success. The feelings of that come along with the kind of words, this can be done, or this is success. 
or if we uh, use ordinary language, we can say, I can do this. I can do this. I can't create a situation to where my mind is relaxed, that I can Mm -hmm. bring my mind out of uh, the turmoil of uh, unwholesome thought. And by doing that, we're adding this fourth ingredient so that now we have four things running and circling around each other. We have right view, we have right sati, we have right effort, and now we have the right attitude. What is the attitude? The attitude, I can do this. The attitude of this is successful. Mm-hmm. Okay, that success then is referred to as pity and is often translated into English as joy. But it's not just an ordinary joy, it's the joy of success. Got it. Okay. This is kind of the feeling uh, that's seen in ordinary people when um, an example would be in sports. When the guy makes a touchdown, when he runs the ball over the touchdown line, what does he do? Dance. Dances and celebrates, right? Exactly. He throws his arms in the air. Yay! He makes back the ball. And all of his teammates might jump all over him. Great big body pile because everybody is celebrating. Everybody is dancing in joy and celebration. This is the kind of feeling. Now, you don't have to be, the, uh, if you're into Zendo, they don't want you to move around too much while you're celebrating, but you can sit there and celebrate quietly. <laughs> so allow your... Your, your meditation to become a celebration. In a patting yourself on the back kind of way? Pat, patting yourself on the back. Okay. Giving yourself congratulations. I can do this. Okay. Wow, if I can do it now, I can do it next time too. Sure. You know, one thing, I think that can also become a hindrance though. You know, I, I think like one thing I've noticed when I've hit these immensely pleasurable states in meditation is I then get disappointed once I come out of them into my normal life. But that's a new hindrance, not the joy. The joy was not a hindrance. Wanting joy the joy not. now that you don't have is a hindrance. Wanting something that you used to have and you don't have yeah. it anymore. Yeah. And that's I get out the hindrance. The, I, I get out of the joy and I start my work and it's like, oh, I miss the joy. And that's mm-hmm. the hindrance. It's not right. missing. That's yeah. why a lot of people, or let us say, at least in the sutras, they say that's why the workaday world, the householder's life, is dusty. Mm. Because I could get myself into a state of joy, but I can't stay in it because I've got to go do all of that stuff in the world. <laughs> and I haven't learned to yeah. be joyful while I'm doing that stuff. See, this I, is why I we think... want to get into seclusion, to get away from it all, literally all of it. Yes, and I think this has actually partly turned me off from meditation, in a sense. Is oh, you'd meditation... rather suffer now, all the time, in order to <laughs> suffer yeah, all the time. Yeah, the pain of loss. The pain of loss, I just don't want it. I'd rather just not have it. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's funny. It, 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 it's funny, you know, um, there's this one um, teacher, uh, Kapil Gupta, and, you know, one thing he talks about is, he actually discourages meditation. He says, don't meditate, aim for meditativeness. You know, be meditative you know, throughout your life, throughout your day, all the time. That should be your goal, not to sit, you know, not to just go sit. 
and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. You're just yeah. repeating what I said before. Yeah, yeah, it's the same idea, um, essentially, and um, yeah. So you would rather have misery full time than part time joy because when you don't have the joy, you are extra miserable. Is that your case? To be honest, I'd rather have joy all the time. Well, take a deep breath and enjoy. <laughs> it's available to you right now. But you have to have the mind free from hindrances. And one of the hindrances, wanting joy. Uh, instead of just having it. Uh, which I imagine... Wanting something that you don't have is dukkha. Sure, which I imagine just trips a lot of people up, right? Because if you're sitting there wanting jhana, you're not going to get any jhana as long as you're, you're wanting it. You're not going to get jhana. No, jhana yeah. is being satisfied with the present moment. And we slip into the present mm -hmm. moment. Yep. Wow, this is so nice. And now you're in jhana. But wanting right. jhana is wanting something you don't have. That's a hindrance. And you can't slip into being in a really beautiful space because you're in a space of want and desire. Sure. That's an unwholesome state, is wanting something you don't have. Joy. Mm -hmm. You can't have joy when you want it. Sure. You have wanting instead. But when you can talk yourself into being completely satisfied with this moment, then joy will naturally arise. Sure. So this is the way of practicing is, is that you actually intentionally gather the jhana factors together and the number one is removal of hindrances and there you are sitting wanting joy and not recognizing that that's a hindrance. Wanting something you don't have is a hindrance. And when you can say, never mind, I don't want or need joy right now, I'm okay without it. <gasps> Boy, is it really nice to not want any joy. Wanting joy is such a pain in the ass. Let me sit yeah. here without any joy at all and I'll be good to go. Right. And, and you know, I think part of it is, the, I think the mind actually likes to suffer to some extent. You know, I think. No, it, it doesn't. It's in the habit of suffering. Conditioned for it. It's conditioned, conditioned for, for it. But I think also it, it kind of likes it in a sense because it gives it something to do. Your, you know? your mind, okay, yeah. is uh, because you want something to do. I don't want anything to do. Sure, it, it's, it's restlessness and worry. One of the exactly, that's exactly what we're talking about is yeah. restlessness and worry. And when we feel restlessness and worry, the delusion is, is that, oh, if I go do something... I'll get rid of the restlessness. Mm. All right, let me give you this little story. The old man is in a hovel, in a hut, thousands of years ago, and he's laying there in the dark of the night, full of anxiety. And he's thinking, why do I have this anxiety? And then he has the idea, oh, it's because the fence. I know the fence is broken. So he gets up in the middle of the night and starts finding some stones. He wants to build the fence so that the goats don't get out and the wolves don't get in. And he spends two or three hours mending the fence in the middle of the night with no light. 
but at least he's not thinking about his anxiety. And so he has the idea that while I'm building this, it must have been uh, the fence that caused that anxiety, because while I'm building the fence, I don't feel anxiety. He goes back into the hut after he's finished building the fence. He lays back down, and now the anxiety comes back again. And so basically, he had the delusion that, oh, if I go get busy, then I'll forget about the mind, which means that it's gone now from conscious level anxiety to subconscious level anxiety because I'm just simply not looking at it. The anxiety, which means the adrenaline, uh, the cortisol, all of that stuff is still leaking into the body. But we don't know it because we're active. Uh, this happens with meditators a lot, in fact, that they recognize that there is restlessness that they don't see during the day, but they sit down to meditate, and to now restlessness is there. Sure. But all our whole lives, when we did get restless, then we would call it boredom and we'd look for something to do, because if we find something to do, it'll occupy the mind so that we don't have to think about the the restlessness that is buried underneath that. So kicking the can down the road. Exactly. So, so but question, within that practice yeah. of Anapanasati, when we sit there and we say, Oh yes, there's that restlessness. I see that. Let sure. me breathe into it and let me relax it and deal directly with the anxiety. Deal directly with the uh restlessness rather than dealing it indirectly by going and finding something to do in order to get our mind off of it. Anapanasati is dealing with it directly by breathing into it, by saying, where is that anxiety? Is it here in the chest? Because I've got actually new students. Generally, it's an older student who begins to talk about anxiety and restlessness. Because they, uh, when they're beginners, they don't even know that they've got it. But after they sit down for a while, then, then they oh, begin yeah. to recognize that, they're, oh, that yeah. they've got restlessness. And, they and then they begin to understand that that, that <laughs> restlessness has been there their whole lives, but they tried to escape it into doing. They take oh, their right. mind off of it. Out of sight, out of mind. Right? So, mm-hmm. Right. So a few questions. So one is... Why do you think that certain people have certain hindrances that are particularly negative for them? So, for example, um, you know, they're in the habit of it. I mean, that's an easy question to ask is because they started doing that when they were kids and they just didn't quit. They kept doing it. They kept developing that habit over and over and over again. And each one of us has an absolutely unique childhood. So that means that each one of us has an absolutely unique way of suffering. You know, it's uh, it's like Tolstoy said, all happy families are the same, and every unhappy family is unhappy in its own special way. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, it's like the first line of Anna Karenina, I believe. But um, the the other question I was going to ask is, you know, we've talked a lot about the Western mind, uh, right? Did you, did you mention Anna Karenina? Is that the one? Yeah, that's where the, that line's the, from. The lady who saw line. somebody jump under a train, and so she jumped under one, too. Yeah, yeah way to spoil it. Yeah. 
And that book is this thick, and that's all it is. This girl sees somebody jump under a trainer, so she jumps under one, too. And it took yeah. him, what, 1,200 pages to say that. Save me some time. Thank you. Right. Well, hey, the, the journey is the reward, so. <laughs> Um, but, uh, yeah, so my other question was, it seems to me that, you know, there's kind of an, a special affliction of the Western mind with respect to restlessness and worry, you know, and you see it everywhere. You see it, the proliferation of therapy, mental health issues, you know, the, the social media addiction. Um, you know, it's funny, actually, um. I have a friend, a very close friend of mine, who's who's from Africa, and um, and we were talking about you know therapy and this sort of thing, and, and he was talking about how people in his community see it as a white as a white man's problem <laughs> to go see a therapist. You know, it, it's like you know they just don't do it in his community. It's just not of interest to them. And there are um, very very few psychologists in Bangkok. And none outside of Bangkok and Thailand. I don't know of any psychologist. People here, they go to the Watt and talk to a monk. It's cheaper. Sure. And, and in New York, there's one every block, you know, where I live. It's it's like all over the place. There's five every block. I don't know. But, um, but I'm curious, like, why do you think it is that the Western mind is so prone to this worry, restlessness? anxiety, etc. It's not. Everybody all over the world has restlessness and anxiety. But the more we have to do, the more restlessness, worry, and anxiety there is. And when you don't have much to do, then there's nothing much to worry over. Sure. So you think it's... And so I would say that Western society, because they're taught to be busy, they're taught to climb that uh, uh, social ladder. Sure. Yeah, I think it is the complexity of our society, you know, to a great degree. Um, we, we make it way unnecessarily complex. You know, even if you want to do something really simple, you know, or what should in theory be simple, you know, like buy a car, you know, or, you know, get a credit card or something like that. There are all these hoops you have to jump through. Um, and, um, and we have all of these different layers of, uh, complication, you know, in many different areas of our lives, you know, so, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that makes sense. Um, but anxiety is anxiety. It is. And it is, and yeah. so everyone all over the world can deal with anxiety correctly in the same way. But there's just as you said that all healthy families are kind of the same, and all unhealthy families are nuts in a unique way. Yep. <laughs> okay, that's the same thing with uh, with our anxiety that we can either deal with it easily or we can deal with it in a really complex way. Uh, the the easy way is to deal with it directly. Oh, I feel tension, anxiety right now, and there's nothing I can really do about it except sit here and take a deep breath and tell myself everything's okay. I don't need anything. I'm all right. And pretty soon that anxiety melts away. But if you recognize anxiety, you say, how can I get rid of this stuff? 
Maybe I could go get a degree. I, if I get a PhD, I won't feel anxious. Or right. if I get the president of the United States, I won't be anxious. If I can get okay, this, that, and the other thing. Really anxious. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you'd pick up on that one. <laughs> exactly. So when we deal with anxiety indirectly, just like the guy in the hovel, he was dealing with the anxiety indirectly, and he only got a temporary solution. Right. Mm -hmm. He wasn't able to feel successful at dealing with the anxiety. He was only successful in mending the fence. Right. He was dealing with his anxiety in an anxious way, which just created right. more anxiety. And, and, and I think, like, oftentimes, like in the West, we create these very complex ways of trying to treat our anxiety, basically, you know, mm -hmm. oh, yeah. um, like, uh, you know, for me, like, you know, you and I, we've been talking for, I think it's been three weeks now. It feels like it's been a lot longer, um, but it, any, <laughs> you know, um, you know, um, uh, like I've done so many different types of practices, you know, many types of Buddhism, you know, yoga, you know, psychedelics, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and, uh, you know, but at the end of the day, there's something that in a sense is very reassuring that to really just be able to sit and enjoy a cup of coffee is just being able to say, this is fine right now. <laughs> you know, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily need all of this, you know, going to the Zen temple and then the Tibetan one and then the you know, taking ayahuasca, you know, this and that, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, things can be made to be much simpler, you know, than, um, than we make them out to be, you know, mm -hmm. that said, like, part of me does kind of enjoy having gone on all these multivariate, multivariate paths, because it's given me a lot of nuance of the many different aspects, you know, of the human condition, which has been nice. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, yeah. Well, everything is mixed. Just like we talked before, I think before uh, Dan was on, we were talking about um, the associative law of multiplication. And when you have um, a lot of experiences with um, different things, you begin to see a common thread with each one of those. And that common thread, like like uh, we talked before, that in Tibetan Buddhism, we get about 90% Tibetan and, one, and about 10% Buddhism. You go to Thailand and you get about 90% Thai and about 10% Buddhism. You go to Japan and you get about 90% uh, of Shindo and about 10% Buddhism, and they call it Zen. Okay, so... If you can find that common element, you can see, okay, that in fact, when Buddhism came to Tibet, it didn't have much effect upon the Tibetan people in general. That in Thailand, that the Thai, that uh, when Buddhism came to Thailand, it didn't have that big an effect upon all of the people of Thailand. Sure, it changed their architecture, but maybe the architecture of the Buddhist temples in Thailand 
were already in Thailand, those kind of buildings that they built. Because I've been to Laos, I've been to Cambodia, I've been to Sri Lanka, I've been to India, I've been all over the place. And Thai has a particular building style yeah. of, an or, of ornate buildings, right? So that building uh, that is associated with Buddhist watch is not Buddhist. It's Thai. Mm -hmm. 90% of what you find in Thailand is not Buddhism, it's Thai. 90% of what you find of what they call Tibetan Buddhism is not to Buddhism at all, it's Tibetan. <laughs> Including books of the dead and bardo and all of that kind of stuff is stuff that was coming out of the uh, original culture. Including, I think, what they call it, the Tuluku or something like that. They started about okay. seven or eight hundred years ago. Right. Focus, yeah. So that, that, that's all magic. <laughs> but the magic is not necessarily 100% pure magic. It can be a, a more subtle kind of magic. Uh, an example of that is is that when people believe that they will uh, go here and there in this world and the next world experiencing the results of good and bad actions from the past, that going here and there to this world and that world does not have to be death and rebirth or a magical thing like that, just going from New York to San Francisco. That's magical thinking, too. Because we think that it's the same guy that was in New York is now in San Francisco. No, he's not the same guy. There's been some changes. You're not the yeah. same. That, in fact, it's going to be a different mafia chasing you in California than it was the mafia that was chasing you in New York. So uh, it might be the same in some cases, but maybe a little different. But <laughs> but uh, by the time that mafia dude though gets on that airplane and goes to California, he's going to be different because he was at home in New York and he knew every place to do and everything to go. And California is all new to him, and he might get caught in California trying to wipe you out, and he'd get away with it scot free in in New York. This is what I'm making that when we uh, that it's not the same. And yet people have the delusion that I'm the same person who left uh, New York to go to California. Therefore, I'm going to be the same one that's reborn after this body dies. And there's right. not. It's going to be something new. And I think a lot of the nuance there is that the self doesn't exist, right? So on a well, path. no, that's another problem with Western Buddhism. The self does exist when it exists, but it doesn't exist all of the time. It only, selfishness only exists when you're selfish. When you're altruistic, you're not being selfish. When you're giving gifts, you're not suffering. When you want something you can't have, that's selfish and that's suffering. So, so sometimes I, you feel like a nut and sometimes you don't. Things come, things go. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I was taught at Chom Tong in Thailand that the Buddha said that there were three characteristics of existence. It was Anicca, Anatta, Dukkha, right? So yes. You had 
impermanence, non-self, suffering. Um, mm. So could you please flush out the anatta and your... Yes, your everything is informal, everything is in flux, nothing remains the same, anything that comes into existence will go out of existence, anything that's born will die. This is the normal cycle. Okay, so as time goes along, you're going along change, change, change. When the change happens, we have a choice. We can either go into, oh, it's not me, it's not my problem, or we can go into a selfish dukkha, oh, me, my problem, therefore, dukkha. You have a choice. When things change, how are you going to respond? Are you going to respond selfishly or are you going to respond in suffering? Now, everything, if you think of dukkha in the sense of being satisfactory inherently, every laptop that was ever manufactured is going to croak. Every tree that has ever uh, germinated out of a seed is going to die. Everything is going to die. That means that nothing is permanent, which means everything is temporary and subject to decay. So in a way, you could say that if you wanted things to be um, permanent, things are not. Therefore, they have an inherent suffering built into them. The inherent suffering is anything that comes to existence is going to go right back out of existence at the right point in time. Every laptop is either going to be um, broken Either we drop it and break the screen, the hard drive goes out, or the worst possibility is is that they've got a new laptop on the market and now this one is obsolete. This laptop will only do DOS and I want Windows. And so even though the, the, uh, the PC is still functional, it's still dead meat. Sure, Because but nobody's going to yeah. use it anymore. I so want something of, new. Sure, so that's a lot of your. So as I interpret your 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 answer, there's a lot of anicca there, a lot of impermanence, and there's a lot of dukkha there and the decay. But I still, but could you still please flesh out the no self? Um, because I think that's actually the most mysterious of those three. Um, and well, the, the self comes. Well, what we need to do in order for you to come to understanding is for us to go through the entire Paticca Samuppada cycle, which we can do uh, on some talk. But basically, Paticca Samuppada, we start off with the understanding that what the term means is dependently arising. That this causes that, the domino effect. Paticca Samuppada is uh, uh, the sequence of events of this causes that. Ultimately, the Pali word is idiopapajayata. Now, the word idiopapajayata means with this, there is that. And without this, there is not that. Another way of talking about it is, is that every fire has a fuel. Every fire is known by its fuel. You have grass fire, dung fires, house fires, car fires, um, uh, rubbish fires. Uh, uh, smoke gets in your eyes when your heart's on fire. Burning with desire. 
Okay, what is in fact going on there is is that every fire has a fuel. If you can understand that, then you can recognize that magical thinking is that fires can can happen without a fuel. Things can be caught can can come into existence or be affected by nothing at all. But the reality is is that every fire has a fuel. Can you get that? Okay, so everything has a cause and an effect. And so when the causes and conditions for the self are there, then the self will arise in the mind. And when the causes and conditions are not there, then self does not arise in the mind. So it's dependent upon conditions. But the way that people think of it, especially from the old Brahmins and reincarnation and rebirth and all of that, the idea then is the self is permanent, ever cha- uh, never changing, perhaps even everlasting, giving rise to the ideas of eternalism, where the soul is eternal or it's semi-eternal, in the sense that uh, semi-eternal is the same thing as eternal, except that eventually it'll fall apart, eventually it will die, but that's so far into the future we can just kind of pretend that in fact it's eternal because it's so far off into the future. So you have eternalism, semi-eternalism, you have nihilism. Nihilism means there's nothing at all, and this is where a lot of people go for Buddhism, thinking that there's nothing. The Buddha would call that wrong view. And nihilism means that I can get away with anything. That there's no mother, there's no father, there's no authorities, there's no gods, there's no hells, there's no heavens, and I can go do whatever I want to do to get what I want. This is uh, nihilism. And then there's the thing that we would call annihilationism, and that's the annihilation of an existing self. And that this is often referred to then in English as uh, atheism. So that the person is a person, they are born, they live, and when they die, that's the end of them. So upon the break of the body, the self is annihilated. That's why it's called annihilationism, is because uh, there was a self, it continued right along, and then when the person died, the self died too. Annihilationism. This is how we often think, either that the self is eternal, or that it's eternal enough that it's semi-eternal, or that it comes at a particular point way into the future upon death, and then the self is gone. So we have nihilism, annihilationism, eternalism, and semi-eternalism, and none of those are the teachings of the Buddha. That in fact, he says very specifically, both formally and now, I do not teach annihilationism. What I teach is dukkha, dukkha naroda. That's all the Buddha says he teaches. Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. And then later in the teachings of Paticca Samapada is where he shows that the Dukkha has to have a vessel. Or, uh, yeah, like water cannot be carried without a bucket. So the bucket then is the self that can carry the Dukkha. If there is no self, then there is no vehicle or vessel for the dukkha, that in the teaching of Paticca Samatata, the self comes first, and because the self is born, that's when the suffering of old age, sickness, death, and all the problems occur, because there is a self to experience them. 
but you're not selfish all the time. Sometimes you're friendly. Sometimes you're happy. Sometimes you're okay. Sometimes you don't want stuff. That is only when you want stuff, when you want stuff, that the self is created. Now, getting a little bit deeper into Paticca Samapada, at that point in time, uh, Vedana, or the feelings, I like it. And if I'm liking something ignorantly, then I want it. If I want it, then I go to, I've got to have it. There's also a secondary thing. If I like it and I want it, therefore it must be good. And if I don't like it and don't want it, it must be bad. This is giving rise to the judgmental mind of what is good and what is bad is really based upon what we like and what we don't like without any real investigation. And so the Buddha says, let's not work with feelings, let's work with investigation. Let's have wise feelings. Because if our feelings are ignorant, then the liking goes to wanting. The wanting then goes to I got a habit. And it's the grasping and then the clinging that creates the self in the sense that the self cannot exist uh, until uh, the opportunity, how to say it? Okay, grasping requires a grasp for. If there is not, uh, look at it like this. Not only is the hand grasping the arm, but it's connected. What is it that is connected to is the self. The self is what grabs. And that's what creates the suffering. That when we grab a hold of something, that the rebirth is rebirthed into a woeful state. It's the self that is reborn into hell. It's the self that's reborn into animal state. It's the self that's reborn as a hungry ghost. When you want something that you can't have, that's like a hungry ghost. You want, you want, you want, and you're doomed to just wanting and you don't get it. But we don't stay hungry ghost all the time. Sometimes we go into hungry ghost and sometimes we're not. Sometimes we go to hell. Sometimes we don't. What is hell? Hell is anxiety. Hell is anger. Hell is when you're hot. And it's all in the mind. So, why did he say no self instead of sometimes there's a self, sometimes there's not I didn't not say a no self. The Buddha said anatta. Now, we can use the word anatta just like the word uh, ajiva. Ajiva, let's use that one first to give an idea of what we're talking about. Ajiva means not knowing, but in fact in the Pali it can also be said of knowing not, or knowing wrongly. So we're talking about the distinction between ignorance and delusion. There can be a form of ignorance that's wise ignorance. Wise in the sense that we're ignorant, but we know that we're ignorant. And then there's foolish ignorance or delusional ignorance is when we uh, are ignorant, but we think that we're not ignorant, we think that we know, when in fact we don't. So that's really a jiva. A jiva is delusion, not ignorance. So let's go now back to the word anatta. Anatta does not mean there is no self it means that there is no permanent self or no real self. Mm. That is just the, the self that comes up is a passing attitude. Mm. That process. And it passes. 
It arises and passes away, but while it's there, it is uncomfortable, it's painful, it is dukkha, it's unsatisfying. And so when you get yourself out of dukkha, out of being dissatisfied, into a state of satisfaction, there's no self there. So my understanding of Anatta was what you're saying, but uh, from like more of a, I guess maybe a layman's standpoint is it, when we investigate our own like patterns and preferences, we find that there isn't anything to, to hold on to. It's just a pattern that, or a memory really. And yep. that, that can just fade away at, which maybe you mentioned psychedelics. Maybe you felt that with a psychedelic or, or a deep meditation where it just feels like you're either not your personality anymore, or you're merged in with the rest of the sensations that you're feeling. Sure. In okay. both cases, I, I've been there. So, right. And <laughs> yeah. so selfishness then is, um, separation rather than the merging that when we're merging, we're giving up the self. We're part of the organization. But, uh, but when we want to, uh, because we don't like the organization, we want to pull ourselves out. That's the cause of the self. The self is created when we try to withdraw or to, um, uh, protect. So fear will give selfishness. Um, here's an example that if you had a brother or a close friend or a memory, a member of your family, and he came and asked to borrow money, let's say a, a fairly substantial amount, 500, a thousand dollars, something like that. If you say no, then you're being selfish in the sense of saying no means I need that money and I cannot give it to you because I will lose something. If I give it to you, so now you wind up that he's asked for money because he needs it for some reason in his mind and you say no to him. Now you have two selfish people at odds with each other. Or if he comes to ask for money and you mull it over and say, yeah, I've got that money. Let me give it to you. And now both people feel good. I've got generosity. And I'm sharing, and he gets what he needs, and we're good friends now. We've joined. There's no selfishness there that's preventing us from being together. But so long as I'm clinging to that money, saying that's my money, and I can't give it to him because I might not get my money back, or I need that money, then we're clinging. That clinging to that money, that's selfish, and that's self. And so he's coming selfish, asking for money. You're saying no selfishly. And so now you've got a conflict. He doesn't so, get what he needs and you're not happy either. But if you so, can loan him the money, you can say, hey, I can do without that. And he'll probably pay me back. And meanwhile, we're really, really good friends. Sure. So, you know, one thing I've I've felt about those three characteristics you know, as I've thought about them, is that anicca naturally implies not anatta and dukkha. Um, because if all things are impermanent, then naturally, uh, given 
what we are as human beings. Some will perceive that as suffering. Um, and naturally, um, it, it is. it then follows that the self would also be impermanent, which would be anatta. So it seems to me that anicca is the Logic master. would be that way. Why can't Christianity just do some logic occasionally? <laughs> it's not, not part of the job description. <laughs> Why do they have to have a permanent self? In fact, I would go so far as to say that if the translators originally had been more careful, they would have translated it, and I think that it stuck in their craw and they didn't want to do it, is to translate it as there is no soul, because the soul implies permanence. Mm. And so by calling it no self, we've, we've actually um, gotten Westerners, especially English language Westerners, have gotten all confused, because it's a bad translation. Sure. No self so, is not anatta. Anatta means that there's no permanent self. Everything is temporary. Sure. So, given that anicca seems to be kind of the master in a sense, you know, that impermanence is lent to these other two, why doesn't the Buddha focus on that as the first noble truth as opposed to there is, there is dukkha. Because Anicca doesn't cause any trouble. Everything is in constant flux, constant turmoil. That in fact, this is something that the uh, particle physicists are beginning to look at. Right. And they stumble onto this from the, from the perspective of what is the speed of light? How is the speed of light determined? That every time we measure it, we get different results and that they have figured out that they cannot figure out whether if light goes this direction, is it going exactly the same speed as if it's going this direction? The answer is, is that because of this distance, we can't determine the exact time. The best that they can come up with is taking two atomic clocks, setting them exactly right, and then both moving them separately out so that you can fire and get, you know, back and forth, but they can't even figure this out. But what they have come across is, is that there is an underlying principle. The underlying principle is cause and effect. That the entire cosmos, everything, is built upon one law. And that is, is that with this, there is that. Without this, there is not that. That started with the Big Bang. And in fact, the big question is, uh, especially with the Christians and um, the atheist about the Big Bang, because uh, um, uh, Lawrence Klaus, I think his name was, a uh, uh, professor at some university in Arizona, was saying that the Big Bang meant that something came from nothing. Well, right. something from nothing violates the cause and effect law, the law of principles. And so he's come to the point of saying, well, it wasn't really nothing. We really just don't know what it was. We don't know for sure that there was a Big Bang. Well, this fits in now with the teaching of the Buddha that first causes or first principles happened so long ago, we don't know what they were. All we really need to do is to deal with the causes and effects of this personal, this particular moment right here, right now. 
But then the Christians go off and say, oh, no, because uh, something came from nothing. Only God can make something from nothing. And the easy answer to that is, well, God's something, isn't he? And if God created the universe, then, then he caused it and caused an effect. And there you go. Right. All right. God caused it. And so God existed. There was nothing, nothing. There was a God if there was a God. But we don't know what there was before the Big Bang. But guess what? It doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. It does have right. nothing to right. do with whether there's a God or not, how I'm going to handle this next present moment. I think we just can't comprehend it. You know, what I don't the, want to comprehend it. I, I don't right. I can feel really wonderful without comprehending it. I don't need to comprehend it. Sure, I'm OK. Sure. <laughs> we don't have to comprehend it. Don't need it. Right. So then I guess like, the reason would that mean the reason that the Buddha doesn't emphasize um, Anicca is because we can't escape Anicca like we can escape Dukkha. Right. What's the point? You're not okay. going to escape Anicca. Um, going along with that point that if, uh, if it's the cause and effect that happens that causes the speed of light, that means that the human being will never find a way of measuring it because things happen too fast. Mm -hmm. Let me give you an example of on, on YouTube. I have seen a video of a very, very high speed camera that takes about a billion frames a second. That means a frame every nanosecond, right? A billionth of a second. Well, we do know that light travels at a certain speed and that it travels about 11 inches in one nanosecond. Hmm. Which means that when you turn, uh, you turn this camera on and then you turn on a laser, you can actually see the laser jumping from place to place, but you cannot see the smooth motion because the camera is not fast enough. If you could get a camera that fast, how fast could it be before? Uh, because you think about it like this. How much cause and effect is in that camera? The photon has to meet the, um, um, the charge couple device. The charge couple device emits a, uh, uh, a few photons. Those photons have to be amplified, sent down a wire, and then recorded. So there's going to be literally hundreds of thousands of cause and effects from the time that that photo was taken to the time that it gets recorded. The same thing is said, well, let's do it with a regular film with silver nitrate. And we have to recognize that that silver nitrate will only slowly, depending upon how much light is mixed, is getting down to the, the, uh, each individual molecule, as to whether that molecule will be modified by throwing the oxygen out of it or whatever. Okay, so it, uh, a photographic film or charged couple devices, even at a billionth of a second, is so slow that it would never be able to get down to the level of how fast things really are happening down at the cause-effect relationship. If light is a wave, what causes the wave to stop going up and start going down? And when it gets to the nadir, what causes it to start going back up again? This is the cause and effect that is happening so fast. So in this reality that we're living in, 
in a trillionth of a second, hundreds of trillions of causes and effects are happening. Yep. We are in an absolute sea of cause and effects. So that in your lifetime, there's been so many causes and effects that have been affecting you that it would be more like a 20-digit number. Yep. Maybe the, a thousand-digit number. We don't know how fast causality actually operates. But we do sure. know that it's so fast that we can't catch it. Uh, Therefore, you cannot do anything about causality. You cannot do the cause and effect. That's not the teaching of the Buddha. The Buddha wants you to understand cause and effect because uh, when something is caused and the effect happens, if we don't like it, that's suffering. Totally. Um, Anyway, guys, it's about 1230 my time. And as you know, Damarato, I, I have to get up early these days, so it's not going to be too easy. Um, well, we only turned to, the video recorder uh, on about an hour and 20 minutes to go, but you and I have been at it wow. for three hours now. Three hours? <laughs> I think it's two and a half. Yeah, close. Yeah, at least on my recording here. Yeah, it's been a while, so. I'll, oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Yeah, 229. Okay, I was looking at the wrong numbers. Yeah, so. So two and uh, a half hours. All anyway, right. Well, we'll talk soon. So, so. Robert, we yeah. will see you at another time. Yep. Sounds good. Maybe I was planning on getting up at four to prepare for the week. So, <laughs> who knows? Maybe I'll I'll call that. We'll see if I can get up. I don't know up if I'll to be you. Here, but I'll try. So, anyway. All right. Well, talk soon. Take it's care. a pleasure. Nice to meet you. Yeah. Take care. Okay. Good, good luck with your jaunas. You're gonna. <laughs> Thank you. Gonna, you're gonna get after it. So. Well, all right. Yeah, we've gotten all, all off of what we were originally talking about. We'll see you later, Robert. All right. See you, Robert. Later. Take care. All right.